What shocking truths does Lady Bracknell discover and reveal? Oscar Wilde, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for $8 off any digital audiobook download. We both win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. If you have the Classic Tales app, check your special features for more Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. If you'd like to share a snippet of today's show with your friends, join us in beta testing the Air app. Links can be found in the show notes. We also have a merchandise store where you can get t-shirts and tote bags with your favorite Classic Tales covers. Again, links are in the show notes. And check us out on Spotify, our new podcast partner. Okay, it's been a rough year, but I think I'm back in a place where I can finally begin production of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and finish the story. There are still eight hours to record, so it will take a while, but it is happening. I'm going to try a new thing, though. I'm going to wait until it's totally complete and then send out a link to a free copy in one email to all of the current Classic Tales supporters. I will not announce when this will happen, and it will be a one-time situation. So if you've let your membership lapse for whatever reason, it's time to get back in the game, if you can. Thank you so much for your support. Now for our personal moment. Not sure if I mentioned this before, but Provo, Utah is huge with Fourth of July. We have the Freedom Festival. There's a big, huge parade. There's barbecues. Our block has a block party. Uh, We have uh, the Stadium of Fire. I think Keith Urban is coming this year. And there's like huge, huge fireworks at the end of that. We can see it from our street. It's a big freaking deal. And we hate parades we don't we've never gone to the parade it goes like right next to our house but we actually leave our house early drive around the whole parade route which takes some doing and drive up the canyon on fourth of july morning and meet with my dad and and uh and his family and we have breakfast out in the in the canyon up there kids can go fishing it's a lot of fun so that's what we do in the morning and we have a barbecue and then we watch the fireworks from the stadium in the street. So, that's what we're doing. I'm recording this early, but it's going to be released after the 4th of July. So, that's what happened. And we really had a good time. That's weird saying, because it hasn't happened yet. Anyway, that's our personal moment. Thank you very much. And now, The Importance of Being Earnest, Part 4 of 4, by Oscar Wilde. If a person actually could breathe fire and have smoke actually come out of her ears, Lady Bracknell would have thus expressed her Promethean rage. Gwendolen, what does this mean? 
merely that I am engaged to be married to Mr. Worthing, Mamma. Come here, said Lady Bracknell. Sit down, sit down immediately. Hesitation of any kind is a sign of mental decay in the young, of physical weakness in the old. She turned to Jack, metaphoric flame still tingling her face. Apprised, sir, of my daughter's sudden flight from her trusty maid, whose confidence I purchased by means of a small coin, I followed her at once by a luggage train. Her unhappy father is, I am glad to say, under the impression that she is attending a more than usually lengthy lecture at the university extension scheme on the influence of a permanent income on thought. I do not propose to undeceive him. Indeed, I have never undeceived him on any question. I would consider it wrong. But, of course, you will clearly understand that all communication between yourself and my daughter must cease immediately from this moment. On this point, as indeed on all points, I am firm. I am engaged to be married to Gwendolen, Lady Bracknell, said Jack. You are nothing of the kind, sir. And now, as regards Algernon, Algernon? Yes, Aunt Augusta. May I ask if it is in this house that your invalid friend Mr. Bunbury resides? Uh, no, stammered Algernon. "'Bunbury doesn't live here. "'Bunbury is somewhere else at present. "'In fact, Bunbury is dead.' "'Dead?' said Lady Bracknell, "'showing even more whites in her eyes. "'When did Mr. Bunbury die? "'His death must have been extremely sudden.' "'Oh,' said Algernon airily, "'I killed Bunbury this afternoon. "'I mean, poor Bunbury died this afternoon. "'What did he die of?' "'Bunbury? Oh, he was quite exploded.' "'Exploded? Was he the victim of a revolutionary outrage?' asked Lady Bracknell. "'I was not aware that Mr. Bunbury was interested in social legislation. "'If so, he is well punished for his morbidity.' "'My dear Aunt Augusta,' said Algernon, "'I mean he was found out. "'The doctors found out that Bunbury could not live. "'That is what I mean.' So, Bunbury died. Lady Bracknell mulled that over a bit. He seems to have had great confidence in the opinion of his physicians. I am glad, however, that he has made up his mind at last to some definite course of action and acted under proper medical advice. And now that we have finally got rid of this Mr. Bunbury, may I ask, Mr. Worthing, who is that young person whose hand my nephew Algernon is now holding in what seems to me a peculiarly unnecessary manner. That lady, said Jack, is Miss Cecily Cardew, my ward. Lady Bracknell eyed Cecily coldly and bowed slightly to her. I am engaged to be married to Cecily, Aunt Augusta, said Algernon. I beg your pardon? Mr. Moncrief and I are engaged to be married, Lady Bracknell, said Cecily. Lady Bracknell shivered. She visibly shivered, and went to the sofa, leaning heavily upon her stick, and sat down. And looking at the two couples, she spoke. I do not know whether there is anything peculiarly exciting in the air of this particular part of Hertfordshire, but the number of engagements that go on seems to me considerably above the proper average that statistics have laid down for our guidance— 
I think some preliminary inquiry on my part would not be out of place. Mr. Worthing, is Miss Cardew at all connected with any of the larger railway stations in London? I merely desire information. Until yesterday I had no idea that there were any families or persons whose origin was a terminus. Jack looked perfectly furious at this, but he restrained himself. He spoke in a clear, cold voice. Miss Cardew is the granddaughter of the late Mr. Thomas Cardew, of 149 Belgrave Square, south-west London, Gervais Park, Dorking, Surrey, and the Sporran, Fifeshire, North Britain. That sounds not unsatisfactory, said Lady Bracknell. Three addresses always inspire confidence, even in tradesmen. But what proof have I of their authenticity? I have carefully preserved the court guides of the period. They are open to your inspection, Lady Bracknell. Hmm, said Lady Bracknell grimly. I have known strange errors in that publication. Miss Cardew's family solicitors are Messrs. Markby, Markby, and Markby. Markby, Markby, and Markby? A firm of the very highest position in their profession. Indeed, I am told that one of the Mr. Markby's is occasionally to be seen at dinner parties. Hmm. So far I am satisfied. How extremely kind of you, Lady Bracknell, said Jack very irritably. I have also in my possession, you will be pleased to hear, certificates of Miss Cardew's birth, baptism, whooping cough, registration, vaccination, confirmation, and the measles, both the German and the English variety. Ah, said Lady Bracknell, a life crowded with incident, I see, though perhaps somewhat too exciting for a young girl. I am not myself in favour of premature experiences. She rose and looked at her watch. Gwendolen, the time approaches for our departure. We have not a moment to lose. As a matter of form, Mr. Worthing, I had better ask you if Miss Cardew has any little fortune. Oh, about a hundred and thirty thousand pounds in the funds, that is all. Good-bye, Lady Bracknell. So pleased to have seen you. Lady Bracknell sat down again. A moment, Mr. Worthing. A hundred and thirty thousand pounds? And in the funds? Miss Cardew seems to me a most attractive young lady now that I look at her. Few girls of the present day have any really solid qualities. Any of the qualities that last and improve with time. We live, I regret to say, in an age of surfaces. Come over here, dear, she said to Cecily. Pretty child, your dress is sadly simple, and your hair seems almost as nature might have left it. "'But we can soon alter all that. "'A thoroughly experienced French maid produces a really marvellous result "'in a very brief space of time. "'I remember recommending one to young Lady Lansing, "'and after three months her own husband did not know her. "'And after six months nobody knew her,' said Jack. "'Lady Bracknell heard that, and glared at Jack for a few moments. "'She then bent a practised smile upon Cecily. "'Kindly turn round, sweet child.' Cecily turned completely around. No, the side view is what I want. Cecily presented her profile. Yes, quite as I expected. There are distinct social possibilities in your profile. The two weak points in our age are its want of principle and its want of profile. The chin a little higher, dear. Style largely depends on the way the chin is worn. 
They are worn very high just at present. Algernon? Yes, Aunt Augusta. There are distinct social possibilities in Miss Cardew's profile. Cecily is the sweetest, dearest, prettiest girl in the whole world. And I don't care tuppence about social possibilities. Never speak disrespectfully of society, Algernon. Only people who can't get into it do that. Dear child, she said, turning to Cecily, of course you know that Algernon has nothing but his debts to depend upon, but I do not approve of mercenary marriages. When I married Lord Bracknell I had no fortune of any kind, but I never dreamed for a moment of allowing that to stand in my way. Well, I suppose I must give my consent. Thank you, Aunt Augusta, said Algernon. Cecily, you may kiss me, said Lady Bracknell. Cecily did just that. Thank you, Lady Bracknell. You may also address me as Aunt Augusta for the future. Thank you, Aunt Augusta. The marriage, I think, had better take place quite soon, Algernon and Cecily both said. Thank you, Aunt Augusta. To speak frankly, I am not in favour of long engagements, Lady Bracknell replied. They give people the opportunity of finding out each other's character before marriage, which I never think is advisable. I beg your pardon for interrupting you, Lady Bracknell, said Jack, but this engagement is quite out of the question. I am Miss Cardew's guardian, and she cannot marry without my consent until she comes of age. That consent I absolutely decline to give. Upon what grounds, may I ask? said Lady Bracknell. Algernon is an extremely, I may almost say, an ostentatiously eligible young man. He has nothing, but he looks everything. What more can one desire? It pains me very much to have to speak frankly to you, Lady Bracknell, about your nephew, said Jack. But the fact is that I do not approve at all of his moral character. I suspect him of being untruthful. Algernon and Cecily looked at him in indignant amazement. Untruthful! My nephew Algernon! Impossible! He's an Oxonian! I fear there can be no possible doubt about the matter, said Jack. This afternoon, during my temporary absence in London, on an important question of romance, he obtained admission to my house by means of the false pretense of being my brother. Under an assumed name he drank, I have just been informed by my butler, an entire pint bottle of my Perrier Jouet, Brut 89, wine I was specially reserving for myself. Continuing his disgraceful deception, he succeeded in the course of the afternoon in alienating the affections of my only ward. He subsequently stayed to tea and devoured every single muffin. And what makes his conduct all the more heartless is that he was perfectly well aware from the first that I have no brother, that I never had a brother, and that I don't intend to have a brother, not even of any kind. I distinctly told him so myself yesterday afternoon. <coughs> said Lady Bracknell. Mr. Worthing, after careful consideration, I have decided entirely to overlook my nephew's conduct to you. That's very generous of you, Lady Bracknell, said Jack. My own decision, however, is unalterable. I decline to give my consent. Come here, sweet child, Lady Bracknell said to Cecily. How old are you, dear? Well, I am really only eighteen, but I always admit to twenty when I go to evening parties. 
"'You are perfectly right in making some slight alteration,' said Lady Bracknell. "'Indeed, no woman should be quite accurate about her age. "'It looks so calculating.' "'She meditated upon that for a moment, while looking at Cecily. Eighteen, but admitting to twenty at evening parties. "'Well, it will not be very long before you are of age, "'and free from the restraints of tutelage.' "'So I don't think your guardian's consent is, after all, a matter of any importance.' "'Pray excuse me, Lady Bracknell, for interrupting you again,' said Jack. "'But it is only fair to tell you that, according to the terms of her grandfather's will, "'Miss Cardew does not come legally of age till she is thirty-five. "'That does not seem to me to be a grave objection,' said Lady Bracknell. Thirty-five is a very attractive age.' "'London society is full of women of the very highest birth, "'who have, of their own free choice, remained thirty-five for years. "'Lady Dumbleton is an instance in point. "'To my own knowledge, she has been thirty-five "'ever since she arrived at the age of forty, "'which was many years ago now. "'I see no reason why our dear Cecily "'should not be even still more attractive at the age you mention "'than she is at present. "'There will be a large accumulation of property. "'Algy,' said Cecily, "'could you wait for me until I was thirty-five? "'Of course I could, Cecily,' said Algernon. "'You know I could.' "'Yes, I felt it instinctively, "'but I couldn't wait all that time. "'I hate waiting even five minutes for anybody. "'It always makes me rather cross. "'I am not punctual myself, I know, "'but I do like punctuality in others.' "'and waiting, even to be married, is quite out of the question.' "'Then what is to be done, Cecily?' asked Algernon. "'I don't know, Mr. Moncrief.' "'My dear Mr. Worthing,' said Lady Bracknell, "'as Miss Cardew states positively, she cannot wait till she is thirty-five, "'a remark which I am bound to say seems to me to show a somewhat impatient nature. "'I would beg of you to reconsider your decision.' "'But, my dear Lady Bracknell,' "'The matter is entirely in your own hands,' said Jack. "'The moment you consent to my marriage with Gwendolen, "'I will most gladly allow your nephew to form an alliance with my ward.' "'Lady Bracknell rose and drew herself up to her full height. "'You must be aware that what you propose is out of the question. "'Then a passionate celibacy is all that any of us can look forward to.' "'That is not the destiny I propose for Gwendolen,' said Lady Bracknell. "'Algernon, of course, can choose for himself.' She pulled out her watch. "'Come, dear,' Gwendolen rose and came to her. "'We've already missed five, if not six, trains. "'To miss any more might expose us to comment on the platform.' At this point Dr. Chasuble came up to them. "'Everything is quite ready for the christenings.' "'The christening, sir? Is not that somewhat premature?' "'said Lady Bracknell. "'Dr. Chasuble looked rather puzzled, "'and he pointed to Jack and Algernon. "'Both these gentlemen have expressed a desire "'for immediate baptism.' "'At their age? "'The idea is grotesque and irreligious. "'Algernon, I forbid you to be baptised. "'I will not hear of such excesses. "'Lord Bracknell would be highly displeased "'if he learned that that was the way "'in which you wasted your time and money.' "'Am I to understand, then,' said Dr. Chasuble, "'that there are to be no christenings at all this afternoon?' Jack turned to him. "'I don't think that, as things are now, 
You would be of much practical value to either of us, Dr. Chasuble. I am grieved to hear such sentiments from you, Mr. Worthing, said Dr. Chasuble. They savour of the heretical views of the Anabaptists, views that I have completely refuted in four of my unpublished sermons. However, as your present mood seems to be one peculiarly secular, I will return to the church at once. Indeed, I have just been informed by the pew-opener that, for the last hour and a half, Miss Prism has been waiting for me in the vestry. "'Miss Prism?' said Lady Bracknell, starting. "'Did I hear you mention a Miss Prism?' "'Yes, Lady Bracknell,' said Dr. Chasuble. "'I am on my way to join her.' "'Pray allow me to detain you for a moment,' said Lady Bracknell. "'This matter may prove to be one of vital importance to Lord Bracknell and myself. "'Is this Miss Prism a female of repellent aspect, remotely connected with uh, education?' "'Dr. Chasuble took umbrage at this.' She is the most cultivated of ladies, and the very picture of respectability. It is obviously the same person. May I ask what position she holds in your household? Dr. Chasuble replied severely, I am a celibate, madam. Jack came to his assistance. Miss Prism, Lady Bracknell, has been for the last three years Miss Cardew's esteemed governess and valued companion. "'In spite of what I hear of her, I must see her at once. Let her be sent for.' "'She approaches,' said Dr. Chasuble, looking far off. "'She is nigh.' And indeed Miss Prism was nigh. In fact, she came up to him hurriedly. "'I was told you expected me in the vestry, dear Canon. I have been waiting for you there for an hour and three quarters.' She caught sight of Lady Bracknell, who fixed her with a stony glare. Miss Prism grew pale and absolutely quailed. She looked anxiously round as if desirous to escape. Prism! said Lady Bracknell severely. Miss Prism bowed her head in shame. Come here, Prism! Miss Prism approached her very humbly. Prism, where is that baby? A general consternation followed this. The cannon started back in horror. Algernon and Jack pretended to be anxious to shield Cecily and Gwendolen from hearing the details of a terrible public scandal. Twenty-eight years ago, Prism, you left Lord Bracknell's house, number 104 Upper Grosvenor Street, in charge of a perambulator that contained a baby of the male sex. You never returned. A few weeks later, through the elaborate investigations of the Metropolitan Police, the perambulator was discovered at midnight— "'standing by itself in a remote corner of Bayswater. "'It contained the manuscript of a three-volume novel "'of more than usually revolting sentimentality.' "'Miss Prism started at this, taking a bit of umbrage herself. "'But the baby was not there.' "'Everyone looked at Miss Prism at this point. "'Prism, where is that baby?' "'Lady Bracknell,' said Miss Prism, I admit, with shame, that I do not know. I only wish I did. The plain facts of the case are these. On the morning of the day you mention, a day that is forever branded on my memory, I prepared as usual to take the baby out in its perambulator. 
I had also with me a somewhat old but capacious handbag, in which I had intended to place the manuscript of a work of fiction that I had written during my few unoccupied hours. In a moment of mental abstraction, for which I never can forgive myself, I deposited the manuscript in the bassinet and placed the baby in the handbag. But where did you deposit the handbag? asked Jack, who had been listening attentively. Do not ask me, Mr. Worthing. Miss Prism, Jack persisted. This is a matter of no small importance to me. I insist on knowing where you deposited the handbag that contained that infant. I, I left it in the cloakroom of one of the larger railway stations in London. What railway station? Miss Prism was quite crushed and sat down. Victoria, the Brighton line. I must retire to my room for a moment, said Jack. Gwendolen, wait here for me. If you are not too long, I will wait here for you all my life. Jack dashed upstairs in great excitement. What do you think this means, Lady Bracknell? I dare not even suspect Dr. Chasuble, said Lady Bracknell. I need hardly tell you that in families of high position strange coincidences are not supposed to occur. They are hardly considered the thing. It sounded as though Jack was tearing all of his trunks apart and throwing them about. Uncle Jack seems strangely agitated, said Cecily. Your guardian has a very emotional nature, said Dr. Chasuble. This noise is extremely unpleasant. It sounds as if he was having an argument. I dislike arguments of any kind. They are always vulgar and often convincing. It is stopped now, remarked Dr. Chasuble, looking up. But then... The noise began again, doubly loud. I wish you would arrive at some conclusion. This suspense is terrible. I hope it will last, said Gwendolen. Finally, Jack entered triumphantly with a handbag of black leather in his hand. He rushed over to Miss Prism. Is this the handbag, Miss Prism? Examine it carefully before you speak. The happiness of more than one life depends on your answer. Miss Prism spoke calmly. It seems to be mine. Yes, here is the injury it received through the upsetting of a Gower Street omnibus in younger and happier days. Here is the stain on the lining caused by the explosion of a temperance beverage, an incident that occurred at Leamington, and here, on the lock, are my initials. I have forgotten that in an extravagant mood I had had them placed there. The bag is undoubtedly mine. I am delighted to have it so unexpectedly restored to me. It has been a great inconvenience being without it all these years. Miss Prism, said Jack, more is restored to you than this handbag. I was the baby you placed in it. You? Yes, said Jack, embracing her. Mother! Mr. Worthing, said Miss Prism, recoiling in indignant astonishment, I am unmarried. Unmarried? said Jack. I do not deny that is a serious blow. But, after all, who has the right to cast a stone against one who has suffered? Cannot repentance wipe out an act of folly? Why should there be one law for men and another for women? Mother, I forgive you. And he attempted to embrace her again. Mr. Worthing, there is some error. And Miss Prism pointed to Lady Bracknell. There is the lady who can tell you who you really are. Jack turned to Lady Bracknell. Lady Bracknell, 
I hate to seem inquisitive, but would you kindly inform me who I am? Lady Bracknell's mouth became a perfectly straight line. I am afraid that the news I have to give you will not altogether please you. You are the son of my poor sister, Mrs. Moncrief, and consequently Algernon's elder brother. Algy's elder brother, said Jack. Then I have a brother after all. I knew I had a brother. I always said I had a brother. Cecily, how could you have ever doubted that I had a brother? And he seized hold of Algernon and presented him to Dr. Chasuble. Dr. Chasuble, my unfortunate brother. <laughs> Miss Prism, my unfortunate brother. Gwendolen, my unfortunate brother. Algy, you young scoundrel, you will have to treat me with more respect in the future. You have never behaved to me like a brother in all your life. Well, not till today, old boy, I admit. I did my best, however, though I was out of practice. And they shook hands enthusiastically. Gwendolen came up to Jack. My own. But what own are you? What is your Christian name, now that you have become someone else? Good heavens! said Jack. I had quite forgotten that point. Your decision on the subject of my name is irrevocable, I suppose. I never change, except in my affections, said Gwendolen. What a noble nature you have, Gwendolen, said Cecily. Then the question had better be cleared up at once. Aunt Augusta, a moment. At the time when Miss Prism left me in the handbag, had I been christened already? Every luxury that money could buy, including christening, had been lavished on you by your fond and doting parents. Then I was christened, said Jack. That is settled. Now what name was I given? Let me know the worst. Being the eldest son, you are naturally christened after your father, said Lady Bracknell. Yes, said Jack. But what was my father's Christian name? Lady Bracknell meditated upon that, needing to bring it to mind. I cannot at the present moment recall what the general's Christian name was, but I have no doubt he had one. He was eccentric, I admit, but only in later years, and that was the result of the Indian climate and marriage and indigestion and other things of that kind. Algy, said Jack, can't you recollect what our father's Christian name was? My dear boy, said Algernon, we were never even on speaking terms. He died before I was a year old. His name would appear in the army lists of the period, I suppose, Aunt Augusta? Lady Bracknell replied. The general was essentially a man of peace, except in his domestic life, but I have no doubt his name would appear in any military directory. Jack tore into his library shelves. The army list of the last forty years are here. These delightful records should have been my constant study. After some searching, he finds the book he was looking for and pulls it out. M. Generals. Malum, Maxbohm, Maggleby, what ghastly names they have, Markby, Migsby, Mobs, Moncrief, Lieutenant, 1840, Captain, Lieutenant, Colonel, Colonel, General, 1869, Christian names, Ernest, John. He put down the book quite calmly and spoke. I always told you, Gwendolen, my name was Ernest, didn't I? Well, "'It is Ernest, after all. "'I mean, it naturally is Ernest.' "'Yes,' said Lady Bracknell. "'I remember now that the General was called Ernest. "'I knew I had some particular reason for disliking that name. "'Ernest,' said Gwendolen, embracing him. "'My own Ernest. 
I felt from the first that you could have no other name. Gwendolen, it is a terrible thing for a man to find out suddenly that all his life he has been speaking nothing but the truth. Can you forgive me? I can, she replied, for I feel that you are sure to change. My own one. Dr. Chasuble spoke up and embraced Miss Prism. Letitia! Frederick! At last! And they embrace. Algernon reached out to Cecily. Cecily! He embraced her. At last! Gwendolen! said Jack, and embraced her. At last! Lady Bracknell looked at Jack, and seemed to examine him again anew. My nephew, you seem to be displaying signs of triviality. On the contrary, Aunt Augusta, I have now realized for the first time in my life the vital importance of being earnest. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Importance of Being Earnest, Part 4 of 4, by Oscar Wilde. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. You can also rate and review us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Every little bit helps. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.